Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 6145 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Onelin Zinzi, Tabisolo Hoko and Msibudi Makura. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour... A split among South Sudan rebels threatens peace efforts. DRC authorities urge to stop arbitrary arrests. And WHO chief briefs the UN Security Council on the Ebola situation. In economics, South African unions declare wage dispute with gold producers. And in sports news, it's do or die for South Africa's national netball team. But first up, the news with Onelin Zinzi. Thank you, Lulu. In your news, Nigeria's President Muhammadu Buhari has sworn in a new set of military chiefs, ordering them to end Pokram's bloody six-year Islamist insurgency within three months. Buhari, who came to power in May, quickly replaced the heads of the Army, Air Force and Navy, as well as the Chief of Defense, in an apparent move to refocus the fight against Boko Haram. A five-nation regional force of 8,700 troops from Nigeria and its neighbors has been set up to fight Boko Haram and is expected to be deployed immediately. The key opposition leader of Burundian President Pierre Nkurunziza is demanding for the immediate departure of the president from his seat. Leonard Nyangoma, a veteran political leader in Burundi, says Nkurunziza has declared war on his people by clinging on to power. When his candidacy was announced in April, it was condemned as unconstitutional by the opposition and sparked months of protests. Nyangoma is a founding member of the ruling CNDD FDD party of Nkurunziza. As South Sudan's warring factions continue negotiating for peace in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, a rebel faction led by Riek Machar is facing open denunciation by high-ranking generals who say they do not trust his leadership. Kaleta Wanjo hears more. The government of South Sudan and the rebel faction of South Sudan are still in Ethiopia's capital negotiating for peace. However, the rebel faction is facing a challenge with an open denunciation from a military general who has been known to be associated with them. In a letter written by General Peter Gadet, the military general associated with the South Sudan rebel faction, who has been sanctioned severally by the International Community for South Sudan Conflict, a warning has been sounded that any peace agreement that the rebel leader Riek Machar signs with the South Sudan government in Addis Ababa will be illegitimate and will not be respected by the rebel military on the ground. The letter from General Peter Gadet says that the military arm of the rebel faction has lost confidence in the leadership of Riek Mashar. 
A Russian-based academic professor, Alexander Meziev, says South Africa acted lawfully by not immediately arresting Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir when he was in the country. Al-Bashir visited South Africa in June for the African Union Summit in Johannesburg when the Southern African Legislation Center approached the court for an order forcing Pretoria to surrender al-Bashir to the International Criminal Court. The High Court ruled that South Africa, as a signatory of the Rome Statute, was obliged to arrest al-Bashir who is wanted for war crimes. However, Ms. Yves says South Africa has a right to scrutinize the ISIS's request. When we're talking about simple people, we understand that arrest never automatic. But when we t- was talking in June about arrest of president, the head of state, it was claimed that it should be made automatic. And the decision of the court, unfortunately, this decision of the high court of North Houteng took that position that order of arrest of ICC should be implemented automatically, which is, of course, very wrong. And finally, as pressure mounts for all SADC member states to sign the SADC gender protocol, young women in Botswana have diverse views on gender equality. Botswana and Mauritius are the only countries in the region who have not ratified this agreement. Gender activists expect regional heads of state to make pronouncements on the issue during the SADC Heads of State Summit to be held in Khabarone next week. This is what some young women in the capital of Botswana, Khabarone, have to say. Women, we don't get our opportunity like men they do. Seriously, it's always about men. So as women, we're always behind with everything. As women, we are the ones who are not going out to seek these job opportunities. We feel that these jobs are mainly for men, and as women, we're not competitive enough to qualify for those jobs. So we just sit back and say, no, that job is more male-oriented than female, so I wouldn't be able to do it. Channel African News, I'm Onilintzintzi. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Onele. It is 8.06 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. As South Sudan warring factions continue negotiating for peace in Addis Ababa, a rebel faction led by Riek Machar is facing open denunciation by high-ranking generals who say they do not trust his leadership. Koleta Wanjohi has more from Addis Ababa. The government of South Sudan and the rebel faction of South Sudan are still in Ethiopia's capital negotiating for peace before the 17th August deadline when they are, according to the mediation, expected to reach a peace agreement. However, the rebel faction is facing a challenge with an open denunciation from a military general who has been known to be associated with them. In a letter written by General Peter Gadet, the military general associated with the South Sudan rebel faction, who has been sanctioned severely by the international community for South Sudan conflict, a warning has been sounded that any peace agreement that the rebel leader Riek Mashar signs with the South Sudan government in Addis Ababa will be illegitimate and will not be respected by the rebel military on the ground. The letter from General Peter Gadet says that the military arm of the rebel faction has lost confidence in the leadership of Riek Mashar. The rebel leadership currently in Addis Ababa for peace negotiations has downplayed the threats, saying that it already cut links with the defecting general. Port Kang Chol is the chairman of the Rebel Youth League. He says the denunciation by the army general is just an act of disgruntlement. 
from the time they were appointed as deputy chief of general staff, the two of them, they have been roaming generals. They were not on the ground. They have been in Addis, in Khartoum, in Nairobi, and wherever. And this is where they defected. But our generals in the field are loyal to the movement, and they are under their commander-in-chief, Dr. Riek Machate. The denunciation of rebel leader Riek Machar has come a few days before the August 17th, the day of the expected signing of a comprehensive peace agreement between South Sudan government and the rebel leader Riek Machar. Sande Okelo is a political analyst based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. He says that this open denunciation gives rebel leader Riek Machar a task to clear his name and maintain the trust of those who still support him. So it is up to Riek Machar's uh, position, I'm sure, uh, to redefine this. Or if he can denounce them officially, or then the government has to enter maybe in some another side the negotiation with these other factions. So uh, it's, it's a very fragile situation and it's a developing uh, news uh, come 17th of August. There are also new reports that some members of the political wing of the rebel faction have openly cast their doubts on the leadership of the faction by Riek Machar. Political analyst Sande Okelo says that this poses the challenge as to who can be trusted to be part of the agreement expected to be signed on 17th August on the rebel side. Uh, whoever would be signatory to this uh, agreement on his part has to be clear because there is faction in, the, in his team which I think it is more or less open now and is official and, and the days are getting closer. So there is need for Yagmachar to define his team, his opposition team. The defection in the rebel camp is an advantage to the government side, but also an awakening call to the government of South Sudan that there are more split factions in South Sudan that it needs to negotiate with again. Koletranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. The UN Joint Office for Human Rights has called on authorities in the Democratic Republic of Congo to stop arbitrary arrest. The call came after an activist from the pro-democracy movement Fight for Change, well known as Lucha Bianveno Matumo, went missing before being released from the intelligence services in Kinshasa on Wednesday. Jean-Noël Bamweze reports from Kinshasa. Bienvenue Matumo has finally appeared on Wednesday after being kidnapped on Tuesday here in Kinshasa where he attended a youth meeting. His movement, the Fight for Change, well known as Lucha, has said the pro-democracy activist was detained at the Intelligence National Agency, ANR, where several questions in connection with his movement and the other pro-democracy movement, Filimbi, were put to him. According to the Fight for Change movement, Bienveni Matumo has not been mistreated while at the Intelligence National Agency, the ANR, but what the movement has described as a serious disorder is the kidnapping method authorities are using here. Juve Combi is one of the Lucha's members. We condemn the anarchic methods the intelligent national agency is using to try and get information about the Lucha. If they need such information, they can easily call one of us and will provide instead of kidnapping people. 
this is not the first time and they really have to change such a method. The UN Joint Office for Human Rights has described the situation as an alarming one and called on authorities here in the Democratic Republic of Congo to stop arbitrary arrest. Toy Abdelaziz is the deputy director of the United Nations Joint Office for Human Rights here. We have a great concern. It's against the rules and, and procedure established within, within the DRC that clearly said that anyone that has some kind of wrongdoing has to be summoned before a judicial officer and, you know, be uh, really brief up, uh, up on what the wrongdoing before, you know, be found guilty or not guilty. Everything needs to be undertaken and done according to principles and, and rules established by the law. What happened is really uh, of concern for us and need to be definitely stopped. It is not the first time. That's why it's really alarming for everyone uh, and the context is really uh, critical. We are heading towards uh, electoral period and uh, we know that uh, within a such, such a context, uh, people, there used to be a lot of uh, limitation in terms of uh, freedom of speech, freedom of uh, assembly and meetings, which is not really acceptable. The Congolese constitution is quite clear. It recognizes the freedom of, of speech, the right to assembly, upon, of course, certain conditions, but this to be respected by everyone, including the authorities, definitely. This happens while two other pro-democracy activists from Filimbi who were arrested in March during a conference on the youth participation into democracy in this country are still detained here. The UN Joint Office is following up on their situation for them to be released or transferred to a judge, according to the office deputy director, Toy Abdelaziz. We are doing the follow-up with the INR, so we hope that uh, very soon something uh, will uh, end up with a release or at least a transfer to a judge because that's what the, the law uh, prescribes. It's what is uh, really what needs to be done to be sent to the judiciary for the judiciary to deal with the case, not the, the security service. There are still some, some area of improvement like, you know, the way uh, the security services like the intelligence services are functioning. This needs to be improved. All this is happening while a series of seven elections is expected here in the Democratic Republic of Congo starting to next October 25th. Jean-Noël Bamweze, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. It's 8.14 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The head of the World Health Organization has told the UN Security Council that she is personally overseeing reforms at the institution to better respond to global health emergencies in the future. Dr. Margaret Chan addressing the council via video link from Hong Kong was the lead expert asked to update the Security Council on the response and some of the lessons learned from the Ebola outbreak described as the largest, longest and most severe ever known. There was also some optimism that the outbreak could be over before the year's end with new cases still prevalent in two of the three worst affected countries. Show and Bryce Peace reports. Guinea and Sierra Leone have both reported just three new cases each in the last two weeks. Liberia has no new cases, but was already declared Ebola-free in May, only to suffer a relapse in June. WHO Director General Dr. Margaret Chan. International organizations continue to support national efforts. 
with several thousand specialists working alongside national staff in villages and towns as well as in the capital cities. If the current intensity of case detection and contact tracing is sustained, the virus can be soundly defeated by the end of this year. That means going to zero and staying at zero. She reiterated the broadly accepted view that the lack of public health capacities and infrastructure created the greatest vulnerabilities. The African Union and the US CDC are jointly establishing a communicable disease control system that will help African nations be better prepared for outbreaks. The first step later this year will be the establishment of an African Surveillance and Response Unit, which will include an emergency operations center and workforce. Funds are being mobilized for distribution efforts once promising vaccine trials in Guinea win approval from regulators, as the legacy of the debilitating disease likely to continue for years, notably among the thousands of survivors as Dr. David Nabarro, the UN Special Envoy on Ebola, explains. The longer-term consequences of living through Ebola are becoming more apparent each day. The survivors face stigma far too often. Their convalescence is often painful and debilitating, with loss of eyesight, severe joint pains, headache and extreme fatigue. It's really a serious issue because many survivors now really do need access to dedicated specialized health care and they also need help to rebuild their lives only then are they able to contribute fully to their families to society and to the economy the who has long admitted its response was inadequate in its words slow and insufficient largely due to the size of the west african outbreak some of the reforms include the establishment of a global health emergency workforce an operational command structure that can move into high gear more quickly and the funding needed to do that in the form of a 100 million dollar reserve fund to support any unexpected surge requirements in the future I'm Sherman Bryce Pease in New York. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Opposition parties in South Africa's parliament have called on government to provide financial compensation for the families of the mine workers who died in Marikana in 2012. During the debate on the report by the Farlem Commission of Inquiry, opposition MPs also call for certain government ministers to be brought to book for their role in the killings. The, pa- the parties argue that despite the findings of the report, accountability and political responsibility cannot be ignored. Abong The families of those who died have waited for three years for the report to be released. They hope that it will provide answers and closure. They are now suing the Minister of Police for compensation for the loss of their loved ones. One opposition party after the other demanded that the state must compensate the families. DA leader in parliament, Musima Imane, accused the commission of passing the bug. This government must pay for what took place at Marikana that day. Honorable members, 
As we reflect on the Marikana massacre, we must ask ourselves, what has happened to the sense of common humanity which we had when we entered into our democratic era in 1994? It is a country that was once a torchbearer of freedom and equality, and it should be necessary for the families of victims who died a brutal death at the hands of the state to have to fight to be able to survive. The EFF, which has been one of the main political parties that have taken up the cause of the miners, dismissed the allegations of political opportunism. Its leader, Julius Malema, says there must be a way to bring those at the political level to account. Marikana was a murder that was facilitated in a clear daylight. And under the political influence and supervision of politicians, many of whom continue to enjoy privileges of this house. Bureaucrats and ground forces of this murderous regime must not be the only ones that take full blame on Marikana. There must not be another Eugene de Kock who gets sacrificed for all the political sins of the apartheid regime and political principles are celebrated as peacemakers. Cope leader and IFP followed suit describing the report as a whitewash. Cope MP Mbazima Shilowa and IFP Chief Whip Albert Mwangu. We demand that the Marikana victims get housing. Yes, I agree with EFF, yeah. They must indeed get housing. Those people, 500,000, not one bag, two bags, not actually one, not actually 500. This report is actually tantamount to a whitewash of culpability in respect of any senior political or police office, uh, police force official. It is an order to exoneration for those that are deemed more equal than others. Make no mistake, Marikana was a great and horrific tragedy. The ANC found itself on the defensive. ANC MP and chairperson of the Portfolio Committee on Police, Frankos Bachmann, described the call for compensation by opposition parties as frivolous political posturing. It, it once again reminds us that in a debate on a matter of national importance, we cannot try to score cheap political points or try to introduce pseudo findings that are actually personal attacks or make unfounded allegations. The previous speaker referred to um, members, honorable members of this House, and, and there was no factual findings made against any of those members of this House. The focus should be today to analyze the findings, implement the recommendations, and move forward as a nation. Chairperson of the Portfolio Committee on Police in the South African Parliament, Francois Buchmann, ending that report by Abongwe Kobokana. It's 8.22 Central African time. Now to talk to us more on the Marikana issue, we are now joined on the line by political analyst Theo Fenter. Good morning, Theo, and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning. Now, Theo, what's the significance of the debate in the National Assembly yesterday? Well, it's it's part of the process. Uh, once once a report has been delivered, like uh, the one on Marikana by Judge Farlam, and not only would it be discussed by the executive and the president providing his inputs, but it must also go to the legislature as part of the three branches of government, and they must provide their input, and uh, the portfolio committee especially must uh, also give their view on, on where to go with this. And once once we've dealt with all of these inputs, then I think it's time to... Um, to, to go forward, but we must not forget 
that the third branch of government, that is the courts, uh, are also involved in this uh, because the um, victims of the Marikana incident already um, lodged their claims about some civil suits against the Minister of Police. So uh, all three branches of government are really dealing with the matter at the moment. Now, Theo, just mentioning that, the fact that uh, the families are uh, uh, suing the Minister of Police uh, for compensation. Now, what would be the significance if government were to compensate the families, um, you know, with regards to the, 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 the civil case that they've already they've launched against uh, the police minister? Okay, the difference is the following. Let's say government decide to compensate um, the the victims of of the Marikana incident. They may decide arbitrarily uh, a once-off payment, let's say, of 100,000 rand, for instance, just an example. Mm. Uh, There would be no um, discussion between the victims and government. This would be a once-off, ex-gratia kind of payment by government. If, however... um, the victims go to court like they're doing now with um, a proper legal representation and they put their case to, go, to, to, to courts, that compensation might be significantly higher and it might be a, a, a very important um, uh, project to get the um, support for those, uh, basically women, children, and, and, and parents that, that remains for a much longer time and more sustainable. And I think that's why Birkman in Parliament yesterday was hesitant to buy into what sounded like good advice from the opposition parties, that compensation is a given. It's almost as easy as just do it. But government is now hesitant to do it because they know that this um, uh, this court proceedings may be successful. There's a very good chance if you look mm-hmm. at the Marikana report, um, which uh, at, well the report indicates that the government is to blame for the incident. Then I think they've got a very good chance to win um, those claims. And of course, uh, just uh, with that, bearing that in mind, if uh, government compensates these families, it may influence the court's decision in granting, um, um, you know, the suit to go on and for payment. Yes, that, that, that is why the wheels of these things are turning so slowly, because um, uh, government is now waiting and, and the courts usually take a long time. I mean, it's already two, three years since the incident happened, and uh, it's only now that we are at that point. It might take another year, but eventually I think there will be some justice in this case. Now, Theo, let's speak to the issue of the cause of history having been changed, especially for the ANC um, in its quest to rule for a number of years. This Marikana massacre has changed the cause of the ANC. Do you disagree with that? No, I I fully agree with that. The the Marikana incident not only had an impact on the ANC and the ANC image in terms of, of, of ruling the country, it is a Uh, a marker in the economic history of South Africa. If you look at certain developments in South Africa regarding uh, trade unions, regarding where the South African economy is going, how the political climate has been changed, it's almost as if there is a post and or a pre and a post Marikana period. Um, That um, that incident will in history be indicated as as one of those turning points. Um, You see, 
um, very often you have incidents that are of a one-dimensional nature, and and they um, are dealt with easily. You go by them easily, but Marikana had had such multi-dimensional um, elements that it will stick. It it is it is an indication of poor socio-economic conditions. It's an indication of poor labor relations. It's an indication of poor political decisions. So there's a, several things that actually pulls together in this incident, the shooting incident that took place one day in South Africa. Now, you mentioned the economic um, um, factor. Does this also, it, it obviously puts a spotlight on, on our mining industry and the environment and, and you know, that miners work in and, uh, you know, the, the amount of money that they're paid on a monthly basis. It does, but not only that, it also provides a new, you see, what after Marikana, there is a clear indication that mines are now looking at ways to manage their, 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 their operations differently. So the, 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 what, what we are looking at at the moment, um, the post-Marikana period, is much more mechanization in our minds. Less miners, more production. How do you get that right? Well, you put in machines underground. Now, this is not the solution for the South African economy because it means less people employed. Ever since the Marikana incident, there has been a decline in the number of workers working on our mines. And, and this is not the current season of negotiations. That's beyond that. It is a structural change that's happening in our mine, in our mining. When we know our mining is still the biggest single earner of foreign currency for South Africa, so it's still important, but it is declining by the dates, like a sunset industry. And I think Marikana was that that moment where people would say, uh, in that specific time in 2012, 2013 things started to change. That's the, that's the significance of Marikana. And do you think the South Africans have lost faith in the ability of the police in executing their duties, especially after Marikana, the Marikana massacre? Yeah, not only, not only that, because I think the incident, if you read the report very carefully, then mm-hmm. the Marikana incident as an incident is an interesting case study to look at um, what happened there. Remember, there was no instruction to shoot. Yes. The shooting the shooting happened spontaneously. If there was an instruction to shoot, it, w- it would have been far worse. But what, what happened really was, was the police uh, handling of the incident afterwards. And, and this is why... Um, uh, Piecha, Ria Piecha is, is, is in trouble. She's not in trouble because she was in the job two or three months when it happened. That one can understand. She's in trouble for dealing with the issue afterwards. And, and then when the provincial commissioners came around a week or two ago, um, almost issuing a public statement saying that, uh, we would like to uh, to hold hands, and we we like our national commissioner. That again reiterated this national perception that can we trust the top management of the police? Now, if that question is even asked, it means that there is a national um, almost uh, concern. But can we trust the police? 
Now, Theo, very briefly, the EFF keeps calling for the prosecution of the deputy president of a country, Cyril Ramaphosa. Now, has this Marikana issue damaged his possible political ambitions? And are local parties like the EFF using this as a way to win popularity? I think it must be hurting um, Cyril on a, on, a private, on a private level. Um, what he did, and, and the commission was fairly, fairly uh, um, open about that, he did what every person in his position would have done at that stage, being on a board of a big mining company, uh, trying to get the police involved, trying to settle the issue, and so on and so on and so on. But the way in which he did it, the letter that leaked out, and all those kind of things, his involvement with the company, now being deputy president, makes him vulnerable. And the opposition parties will use that against him all the time. But I don't think it is it is so clear-cut. What I do think, and there I agree with some of the opposition parties, it is a pity that the commission uh, stuck to their mandate. They were very mandate-specific in their investigation. And no judgment was made about possible involvement of politicians, not in the sense that they took the decision, but in the sense of being responsible. And that is another thing that Marikana points out. And this is the culture of, of, of political responsibility in South Africa has somehow lapsed in the last 20 years. That politicians, although they may not be directly responsible, will take the political responsibility if something goes wrong and resign. It usually takes the heat of a lot of incidents, but that culture is just gone. I mean, if you look at England or, or America or Germany, if, there's an, if there is even a sniff of something that went wrong within a department, the first person to go usually is the politician responsible. In South Africa, it seems to me that we've lost. Theo, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. That was Theo Fenter, South African political analyst. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.33 and our headlines up next with Onelin Zinzi. Nigeria's government gives the military three months to end Boko Haram's bloody six-year Islamist insurgency. Three more suspects are arrested following the deadly siege at a hotel in the center of Mali. And Amnesty International calls on South African President Jacob Zuma to suspend those behind the 2012 Marikana killing. Channel Africa News, I'm Onelin Sinsi. Thank you, Onele. Today we ask you, do you think the South African government should compensate Marikana families? Give us your thoughts and your views on email at info at channelafrica.co.za or send an SMS on 277-969-57930 or get a hold of us on Twitter at RiseShineAfrica or at ChannelAfrica1. Do you think the South African government should compensate Marikana families? Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka.
la UNAL. African investors have decried lack of legal framework which would facilitate intra-trade on the continent. Speaking in Kigali at the just-concluded International Trade Fair, investors said the intra-trade rate in Africa is lower than any other place in the world. From Kigali, Silvanus Karamera reports. Reports from this International Trade Fair call for quick intervention into what businessmen cite as a setback for the entire continent's business sector. This is because Africa has been producing what doesn't consume and consuming what doesn't produce. And this has been a reason for low intra-trade and regional integration. The intra-trade in Africa now stands at 10% and 12%. This is not the case in North America with 40% and Western Europe at 60%. Exhibitors and businessmen here attributed this challenge to lack of legal framework amongst African nations and mixed causes. This is Sabiti Ali from Uganda. Africa as a continent, generally, we need assistance from the presidents. If the presidents can uh, join hands, it can help the civilians or the country people or country ladies, whereby people will come to know what to do. Because most of people of our countries have not traveled, so they have not known or they don't know what is in European countries. So in Africa, we are just still lagging up behind because of such. Cases of trading with countries such as China and others in overseas, in either way, than with neighboring African countries are references provided by these businessmen. But all has got the cause. Fidel Sumsembi is from Kenya. Trust each other for the for the first. And uh, for us to trust each other, we have to mingle, become one. We have to, our government should be strong and we should support them to have one Africa, like other continents like Europe, Asia, Middle East, like that. And with that, I think Africa will grow, will, the economy-wise economy and also social-wise. Some people have been pointing fingers to leaders who don't facilitate or put laws in place. Do you really? I have the same opinion. Our leaders are, are pulling us down. First of all, they don't want to leave the seats. They want to stay there. And once people they start fighting for their power, then the country becomes down. That country will be separated from the others because, no, like now in the case in Burundi, nobody can travel there. So I think, uh, political-wise, our leaders should change. But for Josephine Tetevi from Ghana, the mismatch in doing business among us Africans depends on a number of patterns. I can say I'm so comfortable. It's better than going. I have tra I've done business to the U.S. before. I've done business to the U.K. before. But all that is different. Let me try to break it down. Perhaps you really get the its gravity. That, for example, laws in the place are not favorable. Number one, number two, they say African business women and men are looking at one another as, as enemies instead of looking at one another as partners. Do you really? How do you see this? Okay, it could be a challenge among they themselves. For me, I haven't had any challenge because for we Ghanaians who come here, we are very free together, we do things together. So for, for, I'm talking for myself now. It seems this has gone out. And the World Bank 
has recently advised Africa to accelerate regional integration by expanding access to trade finance and reduce behind-the-border trade restrictions such as excessive regulations and weak legal system. Silvanus Kalimera, reporting for Channel Africa from Kigali. Kenyans have expressed mixed reactions on lucrative trade agreements signed earlier this week in Uganda by the country's President Yoweri Museveni and his Kenyan counterpart Uhuru Kenyatta. James Shimangula has more from the Kenyan capital, Nairobi. Although many Kenyans have not gone through the content of the agreement, they believe media reports that the deal signed by President Uhuru Kenyatta and his Ugandan counterpart Yoweri Museveni is real and permanent. The agreement automatically allows cheaper Ugandan sugar to be imported in Kenya, where many of its leading sugar industries have either been paralyzed by mismanagement or virtually collapsed due to plunder and endemic corruption. The agreement is important because for the first time, it clears the way for Kenyan livestock keepers to export beef to Uganda. To gauge reactions of a cross-section of Kenyans on the sugar agreement that was signed in Uganda, first I bumped into Janet Okach, one of Kenya's renowned independent economists. From an economic point of view, it does not make sense to have this agreement, particularly when our own sugar industries are closed. This agreement harms farmers in a big way and in a great deal. When you have cheap sugar imports, of course, our own sugar will be too expensive for the market. When it's too expensive, our industries will come down. And when our industries come down, the farmers are the first people to hurt. But the agreement has apparently prompted business people to laugh all the way to the bank as one of them, John Mbiu, explains. Business community definitely we going to benefit because at the end of the day, you realize there comes a time of shortage of sugar when our country cannot be able to produce enough sugar and hence we need to import sugar from our neighboring countries. What the president did was to ensure that instead of making allegiance to our neighboring country, Uganda, instead of going all the way to landlocked countries like Zambia, like Zimbabwe, which are also part of Comesa, they can be able to make an arrangement within the East African community. Saddened by their Agreement is Florence Mutua, one of the sugarcane farmers in Western Kenya. As a sugarcane farmer denounced that fact that sugar will be brought from Uganda, I say it's a big no. Kenyans, we are farming sugar here, and I would like our sugar to go out to the market. We'd like our sugar factories to churn out our sugar for our use and probably for export. Why should we get sugar from Uganda and we are farming sugar here in Kenya? It is not fair. I think like uh, small uh, shopkeepers and uh, even uh, the factories which maybe give out uh, sugar, the prices will definitely slump. And I know what it is uh, as a uh, sugarcane farmer. What you put into the crop, so there'll be a loss for our shopkeepers and the people who sell sugar in this country. Fatuma Ibrahim Ali, member of parliament for Wajiri County in northeastern Kenya, sees no need for Kenya, a sugar producing nation, to import sugar from its neighbor Uganda. I think it's a very unfortunate uh, agreement that the president undertook with the Uganda in terms of uh, seeking sugar import from Uganda because uh, definitely. Kenya has a full capacity to produce sufficient uh, sugar and even have supplies to import to Uganda. It's very sad that Kenyans are not aware that this agreement was uh, already drafted and shared and signed with uh, Uganda. And Kenyans have a right to information. They should have been given the information and the uh, president should have sought the opinion of the 
citizen of this country and I think uh, I consider it is in a bad faith. Raila Odinga, leader of the Opposition Coalition for Reforms and Democracy Code, has vehemently defended the ordinary Kenyan sugarcane farmers. All that we talked about is protecting the Kenyan farmer of sugarcane. The president knows it. I would not be against Kenya trading with Uganda as a Pan-Africanist. I cannot refuse the trade. Ordinary Kenyans have also expressed their varying views. As a Kenyan citizen, it is inhumane. It is totally inhumane. And we cannot accept that one because, uh, you know, we have been growing our sugar uh, and uh, we have been calling for the government, you know, to revive uh, some of the companies which have already gone down to the knees. And that is what we have been calling. But yet the government, instead of now reviving for the, those companies, is going uh, a milestone to start uh, importing cheap sugars. As a country, the government has the responsibility of protecting her industries and still practicing the principles of a liberalized market and a free market. You cannot have a market that is closed forever. It must be opened at some point. And to some extent, this competition is likely to open up more competition into the sugar sector. I think that's an excellent deal because I believe Ugandans are our brothers. Our trade is in balance with them. It is important that they sell something to us. And so long as sugar is from Ugandan farmers and is not from other crooked areas, we have a lot of rangeland in the northern Kenya. Our livestock prices are currently very low. If our brothers need meat, we should sell it to them. We must have an open and free trade between ourselves. Views of ordinary Kenyans on the deal signed in Uganda between President Uhuru Kenyatta and Ugandan leader Yoweri Museveni on importation of sugar into Kenya. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. It's 8.45 and our economics update up next. Gold companies in South Africa say any mention of a strike in the sector is premature as the matter must first be discussed at mediation level. Mining unions, the NUM and AMCU, say wage talks have completely collapsed and they have officially declared a dispute with employers. Chamber of Mines spokesperson, Shamin Russell. I think it's a little bit of rhetoric, to be frank. Um, it's, uh, it's really premature to be talking about that. In fact, very often in wage negotiations, uh, when we get to mediation, is actually when the, the real engagement starts. The South African Post Office is plunging into deeper financial trouble as it cash flows uh, dries up and operating costs swell. Now, despite the government's recent guarantee, the parastatal has failed to raise money from financial institutions. Acting CEO Mlumatunsi says the problems are making it almost impossible for the post office to honor its obligations to suppliers. The Airports Company of South Africa says it's ready to facilitate the exodus of 800 Hajj pilgrims leaving for Mecca over the coming weeks. Spokesperson Deborah Francis says they're working closely with the Hajj and Amra Council to ensure the process runs smoothly. Francis says security measures have already been put in place. We are looking towards a very, very smooth operation at our, our airport. 
However, due to the high passenger movement expected during this period, we are encouraging airport users to check in online. However, passengers using the online check-in facilities are still required to come in earlier so that they can drop off their baggage. High interest rates in Zambia pushing up costs in the economy, officiating at the cocktail party for the 30th annual general meeting of Indo-Zambia. Finance Minister Alexandra Chikwanda said commercial banks in the country should strive to lower the cost of lending to reduce costs. Zambia's economy is poised for continued growth, while the business community can be assured of a continued favorable business environment. Slower growth in Tanzania's mining, manufacturing and agriculture sectors has negatively affected the economy in the first quarter versus the same period a year ago. The economy grew 6.5% year-on-year in the first quarter of this year from a revised 8.6% in the first quarter of last year. Mining, a key source of foreign exchange, declined sharply to 0.6% in January from March to 2015 from 19.7% a year ago due to a decline in gold. One US dollar trades at 12.77 in South Africa, 9.99 in Botswana, 7.79 in Zambia, 6.4 British pound, 91 euro, gold 1.113 dollars, platinum 9.85 dollars an ounce, brand crude 4.9 dollars, 2.3 cents a barrel. Channel Africa's economic update, I'm Tabiso Lohoku. Get to know Channel Africa and all the people who bring news, views and great African entertainment. You can now catch Channel Africa on DSTV Audio Bouquet, Channel 902. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.49 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our sports update up next with Msibudi Makura. Thank you, Lula. Good morning, sports fans, and starting off with cricket news. Faf Duplessis, the Proteus T20 captain, says they are looking forward to the first T20 clash against New Zealand. The clash takes place at Kingsmead Stadium in Durban tonight. Duplessis says it's always good to play on home soil. I think it's more mentally than anything. It feels like we've been playing a lot of away tours of late, so it's just incredibly nice to be back home. Even though it's in the winter, it's unfamiliar conditions for us as well. But it's just great to be back home, playing in front of your own home crowd. We're looking forward to this. It's only two weeks, then we're on the road again, but we're really looking forward to this two weeks. New Zealand will be without some of their strong players. They are missing their inspirational captain, Brendan McCullum, Ross Taylor, Tim Sal, the Corey Anderson, as well as Trent Bolt. Some players are being rested, while others are still nursing injuries. Triple believes the Kiwis will still be competitive. 
I've played a lot of cricket now to understand that even if you play against the team that's number ranked number 9 or 10 in world cricket, that on T20s, anything is possible. I know that they're missing quite a few key players, but as you said, like the guys that are still are high-class quality players. And with T20 cricket, you don't need as many players in your team to perform because it's so short. So if you look at what they've got, I mean, Martin Guptill is in great form, Kane Williamson is in great Those are big players for them. Their bowling attack will be... Guys that's all played for them in international cricket. Flanagan, Milne and Matt Henry is all front-line seamers for New Zealand. To be honest with you, if they're missing players or not missing players, you're still playing against New Zealand. It's a very tough gig for us and we have to be on top of our game. On to Rugby News, South African Springbok flank Willem Albert says it has been a frustrating time watching from the sidelines as the Springboks lost all three of the tests in the rugby championship and that Saturday's friendly test against Argentina will be an opportunity for the team to redeem themselves. Yeah, firstly, uh, the first uh, games I was uh, feeling the same as every other supporter, feeling that the guys were doing great and... Uh, um, could have won both games and then the last game also felt a bit frustrated like everybody else. Albers believes that Argentina will play no differently from the last weekend when they recorded their first win over the Springboks in Durban and that the Springboks must deal with Argentina's disruptive style of play differently this time around. Yeah, I think uh, we can expect the same. I just think uh, we have to deal with it differently. Um, I think even before the last game we we, we knew that they're gonna. That's the uh, style of play is to um, disrupt you at a um, breakdown time, especially and at the set piece. They um, so yeah, we know what to expect, and we just have to deal with it. And finally, Nigeria's delegation to the 15th IAAF World Championships in Beijing is expected to depart on Tuesday, the 18th of August. And Blessing Ogobare is hoping to outshine her strongest rivals in the Chinese capital city where she first won an Olympic medal back in 2008. China Africa's Tuno Bana reports from Lagos in Nigeria. In the last championship in Moscow, Russia, Okagura was denied a place on the podium in the 100 meters by Shelly Ann Fraser, Tide, Morea Ahuru, and Kamela Jeta. However, she was able to rescue a bronze in the 200 meters, partly because Red Fraser's Alison Felix had a pool. But going to China this time, Okagura said that she's not bothered by the quality of the position as there could be an upset. Anybody can be beaten, including Shelly Ann or even me. We have all worked hard. Each time you participate in a competition, the essential thing is to run to full potential, said Okabare, who, was also, who also won silver in the long jump with 6.99 meters. The Zaya Sports News at the South. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at this hour. Split among South Sudan rebels threatens peace efforts. DRC authorities urge to stop arbitrary arrests. And WHO chief briefs the UN Security Council on the Ebola situation. 
That wraps up Africa Raz and Shan for today and this week. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzo Ramagaza and Tutungubeni, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Africa or send an SMS on 277-969-57930. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz. On the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is Kofi Olomide with a song titled Loi.
Réveillez, Réna Minata, Pépé à coup chrétien à poisson. Oui, 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 o